Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 89. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. Today, we're talking about what Jesus learned from women with Dr. James McGrath, who is Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University, the host of a podcast called Religion Prof, and the author of the book that we're discussing today, What Jesus Learned from Women, published by Cascade. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Josh and Chris, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Dr. McGrath? Yeah, I, I really appreciated uh, our, our chat with James and just the um, the way that he has been able to draw together so many different threads around the, the question of, of women in the Gospels, but also um, turning that on its head, not just you know, what Jesus says about women or what Jesus teaches women or what they are doing, but what they are teaching him. And, and it helps really to, to get a more fully orbed picture, not just of the women, but of Jesus himself as to, to his place within a first century society, uh, to ca- his character as a Jewish ma- man in uh, Galilee uh, and then in the Levant more broadly. Uh, and it, I think it really helps us with understanding how he is interacting and, and why at times he's interacting in the ways that he does. And so I really appreciated in our conversation, how James has drawn that out for us. Yeah. And I, I loved to hear about his process, especially how he went about uh, caring about the, the topic we talked about. And, uh, and like Chris said, flipping it on its head and, but also how the imaginative aspect of writing narrative vignettes are short little historical fiction snippets how those he struggled and wrestled and tried to figure out those and got all, a lot of feedback from a bunch of different people. And, uh, and I just love the fact that he was so open with his scholarship and stepping into that and wanted to express it in, in an imaginative way that, that I feel will be received differently from an academic book and will bridge gaps between church and academia, um, especially in light of of different cultural topics that are just happening right now, like feminism and the place of women in the church and, and leadership and all that things. I also really appreciated the imaginative quality of the book and our conversation as he unpacked some of the, the process as you were talking about, Josh. And it's interesting to talk about particular scenes. We don't dig into all of the incidents that Dr. McGrath talks about in his book, but the few that we talked about in particular, like Mary Magdalene, Jesus' grandmother, the woman at the well, these were uh, particularly interesting and just really enjoyed it. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. McGrath. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. McGrath. Pleasure to be here. Great to talk to you. So let's talk about your book, What Jesus Learned from Women. Uh, how about we begin by hearing about the thesis of that book? Yeah, uh, the book has uh, some important assumptions. Uh, some people have pointed out that I sidestep 
a whole bunch of doctrinal questions that intersect with the book's theme. And that is deliberate because you make one doctrinal misstep and you've alienated somebody who might otherwise read your interesting book about Jesus. So I've been doing a lot of podcasts in which I've commented on, you know, how can one make sense of this in relation to one's faith and one's doctrine and things like that. But in terms of its thesis, it really is uh, taking what at least many would assume to be true of at least a couple of instances that we know of in the case of the Gospels uh, that Jesus learned from his mother, let's say, right? If he's a human, genuine human individual, that should be a given, right? If you have problems with that, you probably have problems that are really deep and deserve to be challenged by um, a theologian and maybe many other people. And many also see it in stories such as uh, Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. That was a little bit more controversial, but there certainly do seem to be many who agree that this woman kind of stood up to Jesus and challenged him on some of his assumptions and things like that. And the book really results from a process of discovery, starting with the idea that maybe there's there are more instances than that, there might be, and discovering that the same can be said about another a number of other stories and finding that and getting excited about it and exploring it in a number of other stories of Jesus encounters with conversations with uh, relationships with uh, female characters in the gospels. I know we're excited to dig into a couple of examples in particular, but I wonder if maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you parse out how this relates to the historical Jesus versus the gospel's representation of encounters that Jesus had with women. Yeah, thanks. And that's a great question. And one of the things I've, I've given a lot of thought to, it uh, had to give a lot of thought to, um, may, uh, in the view of some who like digging into the nitty-gritty details and uh, expect uh, extensive justification of methodology, uh, maybe the book skims past some of that, hoping that I won't lose too many readers who aren't interested in that stuff in the process, you know, um, the, the dilemma academics always face. but. I was aware from very early on that the book is going to be straddling two areas of interest of mine, but one of which I tended to devote more attention to in terms of my research. Uh, the historical Jesus, which is seeking that historical figure that lies behind written sources, and the literary portrait of Jesus, which uh, is a means to getting at the historical Jesus, if that's what you're interested in, but is not the same as that. And what I realized is that, as many have argued, ultimately we're dependent on those literary portraits for you know, the historical effort to get behind them. And when it comes to the female characters, the, the, the women of ancient history whose stories are often um, neglected, downplayed, uh, skimmed past, treated much more succinctly than their male counterparts, if one doesn't take a different sort of approach to this historical inquiry, then one will quickly find oneself with maybe a small collection of tidbits and snippets of information, but not much more than that. And I really wanted these women's stories to be told and wanted to take the risk of, of, of speculating, of narrating, of elaborating into story. And one thing that I became increasingly persuaded of, which 
brings us back to that methodological question is that when it comes to the male characters and in particular Jesus, who is central. And so we, we have more said about him than other characters in the gospels. Ultimately our ancient authors probably had a lot of snippets and tidbits and bits of information, some memories, some stories they heard from others, things like that. And they were weaving these things creatively into narrative. And so the historical enterprise and what the gospel authors were doing uh, and what readers of history do, even if the historian decides not to do that and just tries to present fair outline and facts and avoid narrating too much and speculating too much and elaborating too much. Ultimately, sooner or later, details about history get turned into story. And so the two are not as easily separable as I uh, had, had at some point in my earlier, earlier in my life and my career imagined them to be. And in, in a sense that was reassuring. I mean, it's disconcerting in the sense that we realize that we have the same problems all across the board. But on the other hand, it, it felt a bit freeing that I could dare to do what presumably the ancient authors of the Gospels had done and say, you know, these early Christians, their perspectives, their role in the story is important. And I can take the little we know and try to draw, to try to connect the dots between the little points that seem most certain in ways that are based on those dots and historically plausible, I hope, based on what we know about ancient life, ancient women in general, but daring to, daring to turn it into story in ways that means that sometimes the details may, may be less than certain. Thanks, James. Um, one of the features I found really interesting was that you've incorporated those stories as almost a, an imaginative narrative in the introduction to each of the chapters. It's uh, so often in, in our academic works or in, in, even in the, the works for the church or lay works, it's, it's a dry um, process um, of information delivery. Um, I'm interested in your reflections on that. I mean, you, you've just talked about the, the, the nature of drawing out from the gospel stories uh, what the implication is there, but for then for your own process and for the process of writing that for an audience, interested in, in your, your reflections on on how that illuminates uh, the characters at hand. With the with the cultural movements and moments we have right now, like the chosen stuff coming on, and like the vignette thing is pretty awesome. It's it's one of those like imaginative storytellings to unlock what's going on behind scripture. And I, I was wondering if as you're writing as you're writing for the audiences. Do you have some of these cultural movements in mind or is it just something that you came across and it's kind of all converged in this, in this way? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. I, th there are a number of factors, some of which came into the picture early and some of which really appear at the end of the process. Um, the Chosen, I don't think was out yet. Uh, I'd certainly heard, you know, for instance, sermons in which, you know, the preacher, instead of having the classic three points or something like that, would tell a story from somebody's perspective you know, in the Gospels. And one of the things that I was, I was hoping for out of this was that uh, the stories of these women, their importance would, would come across. And so this seemed a way to potentially convey that. Uh, initially, I, I, I'm pretty sure I recollect correctly that at uh, one level, at least, I was thinking, at least this bit will be accessible even if I find myself digging into all kinds of 
uh, minutiae and all kinds of things that some people would be uh, very inclined to uh, skim past or uh, might lead them to put the book down, right? Uh, knowing that there's some bit that's hopefully at least readable by a general audience. Uh, because I think it was in the process of writing this book that I realized that despite the impression I had for a long time, publishers don't want us to say, oh, we're writing for everyone. Everyone can read this and get something out of this book. Uh, they want us to pick who we're writing for and figure that out. Uh, but by the point I had actually started incorporating some of this, exploring some of this, and was debating whether this should be something separate, you know, just can go on the blog or something like that, or should be part of the book, I had discovered that the effort to narrate these incidents, these encounters, these conversations, both uh, added something useful to my attempts at historical reconstruction and occasionally actually challenged what I was coming up with. I think very often it's possible to say, yeah, Jesus likely said this, or this likely happened without any attempt to say, okay, so what would that conversation have been like, right? What would have had to have been in people's minds for somebody to say that? And then what would people have said? What would people have heard? And I think when we do that, which does involve imagination, but it's historically informed imagination. I think that's what we as historians and scholars do. And when we attempt to do that in detail, I think sometimes it can challenge us. It certainly did for me. I sometimes found that I was listening to the story I was telling and thinking, yeah, I can't see people talking like this. I can't see this conversation happening this way. There's probably something I'm missing, or maybe this character would have uh, reacted differently and I need to change how I'm thinking about this, this encounter. And so I actually did find it, it provided a valuable uh, perspective, something that actually served as a fairly rigorous way of testing some of my hypotheses and some of what I was imagining. Uh, I think that we often are happy to come up with something that's like, okay, the evidence is this, this, and this, so therefore this happened without really wrestling with what would that have been like in practice, which goes beyond the evidence, but I think is a necessary part of it. And, and trying to tell the stories helped with that. When I was in seminary, Moyer Hubbard, I don't know if you know, if you've run across him, he wrote a week in Corinth, in Corinth and he kind of did this similar thing, like vignettes of life and, uh, and then kind of some exegesis afterwards, kind of, you know, but he was talking about specifically about backgrounds in Corinth and things like that. And I helped him like, kind of index the book and it was the same thing man. it was like the the rigor of it was a whole new brain muscle is what he kind of how he kind of described it because he was struggling through like not only being true with the interpretation but um also representing it pastorally well like so it's accessible to the point where it's pastoring him and at the same time people could read it and and go yeah normal humans talk like that <laughs> as opposed to like uh where it's so inaccessible narrative that it's right, but and it hits all the right points, but it's not um, it's not accessible to people to kind of imbibe scripture in that. So it's really interesting that process. So I, I just I'm really glad you pulled that out. I think that was one of the most interesting conversations I had with Moyer when he was working through that. Yeah, and I think I think historical fiction can do both those things, right? It really does help us test our ideas, but then also if if it's done well, then and uh, yeah, I think that my attempts at writing historical fiction show that uh, I should stick to my day job. Uh, but 
I think that they can at least potentially serve what we might call a pedagogical function, right? And often the kind of historical fiction that's written by scholars is going into, it's, it's, it's presenting the detail. It's there to convey information. It's not to have the most engaging narrative possible. Um, you know, and if we wanted to accomplish that, then you know, you're working in you know, love interests and attempted assassinations and whatever, you know, and the fight scene and whatever else might uh, you know, increase the drama, regardless of whether it's historical. Uh, so I think, yeah, as long as we keep in mind what it is we're producing, I think that for many people, this could actually give them a chance to catch a glimpse of you know, the, the results of historical investigation in a form, you know, that uh, is more accessible and pr providing them with information and perspectives that they might not otherwise engage with. So I wonder which encounter in the Gospels was the most um, illuminating to you as you thought about what Jesus learned from women? Yeah, it's it's tough to pick. I mean, one thing I can say is that the stories taught me and these women taught me things and challenged me. And so picking just one is, is really hard. I, there's a chapter that surprised me and I didn't expect to be in there. And that one is one that my mind immediately goes to. There's one that came along fairly quickly and I was like, oh wow, I never realized that it's probably the, the female character rather than Jesus who's taking the initiative here. And this is significant. But I think one that really just yeah, is, is the one that almost, I mean, I can say even sort of traumatized me a bit. I mean, it, it haunted me uh, because I realized that I had more clues in this story than I realized to, uh, to figure out what was going on and yet hadn't put those pieces together. And that's the story of the woman accused of uh, committing adultery, which is an interesting one, not least because it's not in our earliest accounts of the Gospel of John. And so that one too raises the question, I mean, it might not even be canonical. Is it historical? Should it be in there? Uh, so that that one is 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 one that probably made the biggest impact on me. But it's it's a, it's a close playing field, right? There's a lot of close contenders for that that place. It's really hard to pick one. Could you share some of those insights that you gleaned from that passage? So uh, there are a number of things, right? One was it it had long struck me that. Even if we're persuaded, as I say, uh, possibly everyone participating in this conversation directly is. Uh, if not, I'm sure you'll let me know in the moments that follow. But most uh, scholars are absolutely persuaded this is not originally part of the Gospel of John. And yet it gets mentioned, at least in passing, in a variety of ways in early Christian sources and gets added to this Gospel, at least fairly early. And so the possibility that there was a memory of an event, you know, and it was such a strong memory that people were thinking, yeah, this, this should be in there, right? Other things that were left out, it's like, we can live with that, but this one has got to, you know, we got to find a place for it. Uh, people kept mentioning it, people kept remembering it, and eventually it gets added. And so I think it's a useful story in terms of separating out in our minds uh, questions of what's canonical, right? What's, you know, there in the Gospels versus what's historical. Uh, that History may be something that lies behind, but is not precisely represented by any of the Gospels uh, and may not be exactly what emerges if we just 
lump them all together and stir <laughs> densely until we think we can <laughs> blur the pictures. Uh, but actually, the church may have been, and I believe probably was capable of remembering things beyond uh, the, a few decades. It's not as though once the Gospels begin to be written, then everybody forgets everything because texts appear. Um, I say that as somebody who writes things down because he's prone to forget them. And so it certainly is the case that sometimes we we write things down and then don't feel the need to pass things on. But this is still a primarily oral context. And so even just that aspect, I think, is important. But then recognizing that some of the details were given all converge on a particular portrait, right? So the fact that it's the Pharisees who bring this woman to Jesus, uh, they do so in the temple courts. And so this is not the picture of a bunch of people out in you know, barren landscape ready to, for a stoning, uh, even though we do have some accounts of people trying to stone Jesus on the spot in the gospels. Uh, but there it seems to be a spontaneous reaction. Like this is a, a deliberate there, they're according to the gospel, seeking input from Jesus. And so this is more like a trial, right? They're consulting uh, with Jesus. And knowing that the Pharisees, if we know what Josephus says about them, for instance, then they're not there for blood, trying to, you know, saying, you know, we hope that he'll condemn her. They're probably looking for a loophole, right? That's the thing that the Pharisees were, were renowned for, especially in cases involving the death penalty. And the fact that it says stoning connects with specific accusation, right? Uh, so it suggests that this was a, a betrothed virgin or somebody in a very similar sort of scenario. And so suddenly these pieces started coming together in ways that many commentators didn't draw. And as I was thinking about the pieces of the puzzle, one thing that everyone looking at this text and looking at this story wonders about is, Okay, so Jesus stoops down and is doing something with his finger on the ground. What's that about, right? And if we're supposed to know, why doesn't the author tell us? And if we're not supposed to know, then why does he tell us at all, right? What's the point of this? And that was when I came across uh, some archaeological research that had been done on the temple floor and the fact that it had these ornate tiles and other things there. And that got me thinking that even if Jesus was not at that moment in one of those places that had the mosaic on the floor where anything he drew or wrote on it would be illegible. This is, this is an area where hundreds, thousands of people are trampling through there. And while there's bound to be dust on the floor, like from, sacrifice, from sacrifices, from people, from the surroundings, he's not writing to be legible. And so the, the story actually gave me some some interesting possibilities, open some new possibilities regarding what the significance of that action might have been if conveying things in writing that could be read by those around him was not the point. And as all those things converged, I realized that, and I, and I say this in the book, I won't reveal all the details of what I, what I say about the story, uh, although obviously you can ask follow-up questions that might pull those things out if you want me to go into more detail here. Uh, there'll still be all those other chapters that I don't say anything about in the podcast. But the thing that really just struck home to me was that this woman probably was traumatized by this experience. Uh, we know a lot more about her and can say a lot more about her than we usually do. And despite the fact that she's there at the center of these gazes, right, as she's being accused, 
there was so much I had missed, right? So I had not, I had not looked intently at her, right? I was looking at Jesus, I was listening to the accusers, and wasn't listening even to what was really implicit in the details that I was provided about her story. And so this became sort of a whodunit for me, trying to figure out, you know, so what's exactly the backstory that we're not hearing here? And I realized that it is kind of a, it kind of is a, a whodunit that they bring to Jesus. And it's like, okay, can you solve this and give us a proper verdict to resolve this case? And you know, he doesn't. He kind of sends them all away in a, a very blunt way that sort of dismisses them all equally. And yet, I think there's a reason connected to the, the accusation and her story that uh, could explain why he might have done so. I, I love the fact that there's an accessibility to the way you write the little vignettes for narrative in what you're talking about right now, especially when it comes to, we always talk, we talked about the assumed patriarchy and the different things like that, that just kind of come into our reading. Um, and since I've been in the academic world and I'm in the church world right now, this seems to me one of those resources that's just really powerful that are that's accessible to both and i love that i i uh and i love the fact how you walk through in your in your preface how you were challenged by your graduate student to step into that can you speak a little about how it's been received in that has it been received as a convergence between academic and church as it how's it been used as a resource what kind of stories have you heard so far yeah and i i will say yeah just um, yeah, that uh, it's, it was actually an undergraduate student, right? So think about an undergraduate honors thesis and brainstorming topics that led to this one. And it was me coming up with, you know, one of my many, you know, the one thing I'm usually good at is floating outlandish ideas. And then people say, no, no, no. Yeah. So this was one where I was like, well, what about this? And the response was, no, that's not really what I'm looking for, right? And to be fair, this was a student who really wanted to explore sort of her own faith and her identity as a feminist and how it related to her ministry. And because I mostly do New Testament or Christianity, ancient stuff, I was trying to make connections there, but she came up with another topic where I was able to uh, supervise that. Um, but yeah, I did float this. I tried to find academics who would give me feedback. Uh, one thing that was most crucial to me was to hear from women. Uh, of every level of readership from no real background in biblical studies, worked out fairly early that, yeah, this is not a book for that group. Uh, this is not really a good place to start. You know, it goes into way too much detail and stuff like that. Uh, but it's like, that's okay. Because if you go into that level of detail starting from the beginning, then a lot of people who are looking for something that will dig into a lot of the, the, the detail of the stories will say, yeah, this isn't the book I'm looking for. So you do have to pick your audience. But I did want it to be accessible for, uh, for students you know, in an academic context to contribute something to our knowledge and not just be kind of an introductory book, but actually contribute something and make some, some new suggestions. And wanted it to be useful, at least to clergy, right? Who could then maybe translate it and you know, use it in certain ways. And so ran it by my Sunday school class, got uh, other clergy, to read it and wanted female readers because I, as a, a male writing about this, on the one hand, I thought it was important and valuable that I say women in the Gospels is not a, a topic just for women to write about. And then women read about it and men ignore what the women are saying. And it's, you know, it, it perpetuates this uh, um, appalling and disappointing thing that often happens in the academy and in the church and elsewhere. 
uh, but also was looking for feedback on, you know, does this work as an academic book? Does it work as a book that is the kind of academic book that clergy can read and get something out of? And have, have heard stories about people reading it and uh, making use of aspects of it or finding inspiration in it in a sermon series, had a chance to meet with a, a book book club in, based in Australia that well, was reading the book and that ended up actually getting people from all over the world. I ended up uh, getting up at like four or five o'clock in the morning in order to make that work conveniently. And I'll tell you, it was absolutely worth it, right? Because one thing that often happens for authors of most books is that we write things that we hope are interesting, but deep down we may know even before <laughs> even before we submit the manuscript that it's going to be of interest to the kind of people we might hang out with on a podcast of, of scholars and Bible geeks, but it's not going to be of, of very, very broad interest. And getting up early enough to hear how people were saying, yeah, this, this actually is making an impact. This actually means something to me uh, in a personal level as well as in an intellectual way. That's, that's the kind of thing that oftentimes authors don't get to hear. And so it was, it was wonderful to get to hear that. So uh, let me seize the opportunity to say that anyone who's listening to this is like, yeah, oh, you know, we've got a copy in my library and it's been checked out most of the time, or we were talking about it in my church, or I really hate it. And here's why. Any of that, um, I'm very interested to hear those kinds of things, uh, what, what people are thinking of it. So as we're talking about imagination with all of this, I'm wondering um, what you might think about the recent film, Mary Magdalene, which came out in 2018 uh, with uh, Rooney Mara playing Mary Magdalene and Joaquin Phoenix playing, playing Jesus. I'm wondering what you think about that film and its portrayal of Mary Magdalene and if you might want to intersect some of the things that you do in your book relative to that as well. Yeah, Mary Magdalene was another challenging one, uh, not least because her her entire character gets uh, gets changed uh, over the course of church history, right? As she gets identified with other characters in the Gospels, that the Gospels themselves don't don't suggest that she should be or even could be in some instances be identified with, and so gets depicted as you know prostitute and other things. And without, you know, without getting into the, the um, a broader discussion of sex work and things of that uh, sort that really could distract us from this book on the historical Jesus and uh, you know, get us in, off on another tangent. But certainly in the context of you know, historical, you know, patriarchal church leadership, characterizing her in that way was a way to uh, sort of marginalize her and make her seem less authoritative. You know, she's important as, you know, as a, as a repentant sinner, but not, not really somebody who's uh, leadership material, shall we say, uh, within the framework of the expectations of those cultural norms and things of that sort. And really, I, I kind of left her till the end. I, was, I had her in view all along because you can't write about the influence of women on Jesus, women in the life of Jesus, and not write about Mary Magdalene. And yet, precisely because so much more has been written about her. Movies have been made. Uh, the character has been depicted in detail so often that there were, there were choices that had to be made. And I decided that at the risk of boring people, I was going to make this a woman who is, if she's interesting to you, it's because she 
is somebody that sort of clicked with Jesus and uh, as as a as a person who supported his ministry and possibly was you know um, older than he was. Yeah, I found myself thinking because if she is a woman of means who can support his activity, then she's probably uh, not just the young woman that we often get who's, even when it's not said, the implicit you know, love interest or potential love interest. So at least you're wondering in that movie, right? Is that where they're going to go? And then when they don't, you're either relieved or disappointed, but it's still there is a, a possibility. And very few people had explored the possibility that maybe this is more like uh, you know, somebody that you think of as, as more like an aunt than a love interest, um, you know, as somebody who's has the potential to be mentor and, you know, family friend and, you know, might've clicked with Jesus' mom more than, or as much as with Jesus and things of that sort. And so try to at least explore that possibility in the book. And I actually say at one point, you know, I was kind of hoping that I'd make Mary seem a little more boring in the sense that by the end of it, you know, there, there's no there's no real room for scandal. There's nothing to get really excited about. There's nothing that would ever make front page news headlines. And I don't have the impression that she was in any way scandalous, right? There's debate about her in post-New Testament literature in terms of whether Jesus would have revealed his teaching to a woman, whether she should have this status. And that's the question that some were asking and the basis on which some were challenging her, her position, right? And the appeals to her as an authority and a source for, for information, for revelation, for things of that sort. It's not, well, maybe she was a prostitute. It's not, maybe she was this. It's not, you know, nobody's talking, well, what was, was she a love interest and did she know things on that level? Everybody seems to be talking about her gender and whether that means that everybody should be listening to, to Peter and the other folks and not to her. And that seems to me to be what would have been the issue because she wasn't, uh, she wasn't somebody that it was natural to fit into those other categories. Yeah, and I think that that's one area that the narrativization really helps us to, to get within the text. Uh, and I notice in the in the introduction to the book, one of the things that you're very certain to talk about is uh, that we shouldn't be placing Jesus and and even and all of the characters, Mary and the disciples and and um, the others, as 21st century characters, but rather as distinctly first century characters. Uh, you write that if Jesus viewed and interacted with women in a manner that it was not typically of his time, then we need to understand him as a first century Jewish feminist rather than as a 21st century Western feminist, which is what I think many times um, people want to view, view him as. And, and this extends into other literary characters in, in the Gospels and in and the writings of Paul and things like that. Interesting your reflections on, on that as uh, a public engagement as well, because uh, I note um, at least when I was having a look at the reviews, uh, at least one makes that that standard trope of, well, this can't be accurate because it doesn't fit into the 21st century idea that we have of who Jesus is and who these women are and stuff like that. So, you know, baby bathwater, um, it's all going down the drain. Interesting your reflections on, on that, engage, this, the cultural engagement, the social engagement there. The project definitely reflects uh, a longstanding conviction born out of study of a lot of New Testament literature that we, we need to 
at least make the effort to hear it in its own time um, against that backdrop within its own context before we try to harness it as a resource for the things we do today. And I always immediately qualify that by saying that what we choose to focus on and how we understand, how we imagine, even if it's a historically informed imagination, I am still a 21st century individual imagining the first century. And I've tried to do due diligence and find out as much as I can, but ultimately my mind and the minds of people today uh, cannot but distort some of that material because I can't get inside the culture. I can't live as a first century uh, Western Mediterranean individual of any sort. Uh, entirely, fully, completely. And so figuring out how to do justice to the historical difference and yet not pretend that when I'm writing a book on what Jesus learned from women, this is not going to engage with contemporary concerns of feminism and uh, gender equality, uh, particularly in churches, but more, more generally. Uh, when I spoke about Jesus as, a, uh, as potentially, you know, if, if, if he's any kind of feminist at all, he's a first century Jewish feminist, one of my biggest concerns was to address the penchant for Christians to make Jesus out to be a, a feminist over against Judaism, which was supposedly the bastion of patriarchy and things like that. And so you get this Jesus versus Judaism, Jesus versus his time and his context. And approaching it this way, it actually made it quite natural to uh, both speak against that that tendency and to uh, at least hopefully avoid that pitfall. Whether I did so successfully, I'm not sure. Uh, there were, uh, there's one scholar in particular who gave me feedback that I think helped me at least mitigate some of the tendencies that might have moved in that direction, even while deliberately trying not to, because you know we're, we're fallible and these things happen. But ultimately, I think emphasizing that he's a Jewish feminist, if he's any kind of feminist at all, is important because it's not Judaism is patriarchal, Jesus comes and liberates women, right? Uh, he is somebody who may have been one of many in his time who was uh, taking a minority view on gender equality, if, if that's what we conclude. If so, he was influenced by other men because he wasn't the only one. And women, clearly he's listening to women if he's doing this, and so there is, there is Jewish feminism at work in this uh, in some way, shape or form. And then also emphasizing that you know, Judaism was patriarchal in ways that first century societies were patriarchal for the most part. And there were differences within Jewish society, depending on whether you were urban or rural, whether you were um, elite, right? Or, you know, uh, peasant, peasant agriculturalist. And a lot of those differences even if in very different ways, persist in our own societies. Right? If you talk with people who are from a major urban center, their perspective on gender equality and things like that may be different than people who are living in, in, you know, in rural farmland and living in a more traditional way. Uh, the latter may still have a, a stronger sense of gender equity and things of that sort than might've been there 200 years earlier in the same place but it may not be the same as the person living in the city. And I think 
trying to do justice to the historical nuance actually lets the text speak in a, a more vibrant way to our own time because it it forces us to think about the differences in our own time and to avoid saying okay you know well we've had women in leadership positions therefore we're doing we're doing just great um, we might be doing better than we had been but there may still be room for improvement and uh, I think trying to be nuanced in the ways that academics and sometimes only academics are interested in doing uh, does have something important to say to our own time and nuancing uh, in relation to that as well. I really appreciate in that section the way that you're contrasting that pattern of our modern discourse, which sort of sets up that if this is true, then this other thing must be denigrated as false. Mm -hmm. um, so if Jesus, in this case, it was if Jesus is a 21st century feminist, then uh, in then it's very specifically an anti-Judaism um, because you need to set up the Pharisees, not not you, but the, the culture sets up the Pharisees as the the foil to make Jesus into that uh, 21st century um, Western ideal, um, and and I think that's why the, those areas and to, to circle back to the uh, to the narrativization, um, the narratives really help us to explore that in a way that isn't. Uh, didactic in in its first sense, but it, it allows people to step within those um, the environment, step within the narrative, to be able to process what is going on there, uh, without the didactic nature of um, of being instructed uh, to do these things. Uh, so, I'm interested in so pedagogically how you might then draw that out into other areas of cultural engagement in your or in your classroom if you've had any reflections on that yeah and one thing i haven't done yet is develop a course on like either specifically what jesus learned from women or uh you know, women in the early jesus movement i i have been thinking about that uh, so that's that's one possible direction but it's been interesting where it's it's been interesting to think about where the and discover where the most natural mentions of the book sort of come up, and it's happened even more so I think in a course I teach on the Bible and music, where there too you know one of the things that one can do in you know sort of creating music that engages with the Bible is to discover you know whose story isn't told here fully, and there have been some really interesting songs written, um, works of you know traditional art music and things like that where stories either get uh, told that aren't told. Sometimes whole characters are introduced uh, who are like a fly on the wall, but get to give us their perspective. But then you also have the attempt to narrate in an imaginative way to you know, create a whole libretto from you know, the very sparse details of, of a biblical story. And it forces you to ask, okay, so what would this actually have meant for the people participating in this? Uh, even just thinking as story, right? Even whatever you think about history, uh, as as story, I think very often the the biblical literature is either a summary of oral storytelling, where sometimes they probably would have elaborated and gone into a lot more detail, or was used in environments in which the storyteller would have probably been asked follow up questions and might have had some answers that didn't make it into the text. Um, one of my one of the most uh, Frustrating texts in all the New Testament, uh, I think, is the one you know in the Epistles of John, where it's like, I've got lots of other things I'd love to tell you, but you know there are better ways of doing that than you know using pen and ink. I'm like, 
why write that if you're not going to tell us, right? But of course, that's one of those things that reminds us this was a letter, and it was a letter that served in an ancient letter writing context, which was mostly, you know, not as a substitute for being in person, but as a way of either commissioning someone who's going to prepare the way for your visit or, you know, so there's, there, I'm, I'm glad it doesn't come across as, you know, didactic and heavy handed. Um, I do think one benefit of being the kind of personality type that just finds understanding ancient stuff interesting, uh, it makes it easier to do that. It's like, here's a story, you know, here's, here's what it might've been like. And that's enough. I don't have to persuade you of something necessarily. Of course, people who have a different personality type might not resonate with that in quite the same way. So before we end, let me ask you a question, if you'll allow me to. Do you have a favorite part of the book? Uh, was there one chapter or one story that you found particularly meaningful, interesting, persuasive? I ask this not just to persuade people to read the book, although obviously I'll be very happy if that happens, but I'm genuinely interested as author to find out what, what people find interesting, what's meaningful to them. And so would love to hear your perspective on that if you don't mind sharing a few words about that. I, I, I really appreciated the chapter on the uh, Samaritan woman, uh, the woman at the well. Uh, and that's that's particularly as a Gehenine scholar. We have this broad characterization within the Gospel of John. Uh, it's much more well-rounded as a figure than um, than many of the other characters. The Samaritan woman is arguably almost more well-rounded than the disciples, uh, who in this in this chapter just show up and uh, amazed at. You know the fact that Jesus is talking with a woman; they don't really get it, and they go away. Um, and whereas the woman actually has uh, interaction, she has questions, she has an inner life. Uh, the 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 characteristics of her, the, her characterization is is quite rich, and yet uh, you've managed to draw it out into a more fully orbed scene. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, and it's completely not. Uh, as an aside, it's completely not because I'm currently writing a paper on Nicodemus and Simon Peter. So, um, but that's another matter entirely. It's, I look forward to reading it when it's done. Yeah, I'll be honest. Like at first, when you started, when you said I have a chapter on Jesus's grandma, like I was like, how extra biblical is this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and even in your preface, you talked about using, you know, imaginally thinking through extra biblical sources and incorporating that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, like when I read the narrative of the grandma, it was so cool because there's a, there's, you know, we have the assumed patriarchy, but then there's also the aspect of women's role, especially in the, in the role of grandma over an entire family that is so essential. And it's just so ingrained in everything that their influence and all the kind of things. And, I loved I loved that package. So it felt like you're kind of like undermining the patriarchal culture, the kind of assumptions in a way, but the storytelling was imaginative where she was like, I watched Jesus's eyes brighten. I watched, you know, it was like a grandma speaking about her grandkid that was like, there's something cool about this kid. There's something special about this kid. And even though he's just still figuring it out, whew, and, it, and it's kind of one of those. Uh, so it, it hit it hit all the strings. It hit for me emotionally how my grandparents were, but it also hit it also in the background of my head. I was like, this is one of those things that's, that's undermining 
some other culture, some subcultural assumptions we make in a way that is uh, just creative. And I really like that. And I, I would share that story with somebody that was trying to figure out in my pastoral ministry is trying to figure out their role as a grandmother, um, especially as they've, you know, come to life and stage where empty nesters and then grandparents and be like, look at the influence that you can still have. Look at, and it, yes. Yeah, so for me, those pastoral implications. And of course I love the, I love the historical stuff. I love the background stuff. So all of those kind of things roll together. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. That's really encouraging. Not least because it didn't seem like it could not start, you know, not like bring her in very early. You know, it would have been really strange chronologically to save her till the end. On the other hand, somebody who's using a historic, a traditional historical critical approach is going to be like, okay, now what can you really say about Jesus' grandmother? And yet from a, a human perspective, he had two, right? Uh, it's like, that's, you know, um, and you know, whatever one's view of um, a particular doctrine or a particular thing, uh, had at least one on his mother's side, right? And so it was a direct connection there. So we can, you know, try and figure out what can we say about, you know, what was likely about a grandmother's role and influence generally and things like that. And I really did, this was another one where I really sought input, not least because, you know, my uh, memory of grandparents is is, is sketchier than uh, some, you know, because of when they died and things like that. But was asking my son, yeah, what if anything do you think you took away from, you know, your, you know, knowing your your grandmother, you know, your maternal grandmother and things like that, uh, trying to glean insight from others. And so, if the result is something that you think grandmothers might appreciate and uh, get some encouragement from, then I'm uh, that alone would make the book worth, you know, having written the book worth it. Um, if the other stuff is good too, great. But you know, if I'm encouraging grandmothers uh, to do their thing and support empty nesters and all the stuff you mentioned, then uh, uh, that alone is worth the effort. Well, Dr. McGrath, thank you so much for for joining us and uh, sharing some of the insights that you gleaned, uh, just as uh, Jesus did from from women. Thank you.